a reading from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I say the word generosity, what comes to mind? Most often what comes to mind when I say a word like generosity or think about it is somebody who gives a lot of money away. Since the year 2000, Warren Buffett and Bill and Melinda Gates have each given away over $50 billion, $50 billion over the past 20 years, each of them. It's amazing. Now for both of them, it's only half of what their net worth is, but that's Amazing, $50 billion. So the question is, is generosity about dollar amounts or about percentage of your worth or income that you give away? Well, the hard thing is we can think of so many other ways in which generosity plays itself out. And I think that's what God invites us into as well. When I was leaving high school, I spent a whole month of my summer working on work crew at a Young Life camp in the Adirondacks. And in the first week there, I met a guy named Carl Hoover. He was about a year or two older than me, and he was in a, kind of one of the head chefs. And I remember um, he had this really cool baseball hat in a day and age when that was a, a currency that we valued. And another kid said to him, Carl, that's a really cool hat. That thing's awesome. And Carl said, hey, really? You like it a lot? He said, yeah, it's really cool. Do you want to trade for it? And Carl said, no, just take it. And he took it off his head and gave it to him. I was like... This is amazing. This is absolutely incredible. Like somebody would be that generous and we cared about hats and we would trade for them, but we would not give them up. Carl did in an act of generosity that I saw him do time and again years later. I have another friend who loves to cook for people. And if he invites you to his house for dinner, you should go. He is um, an incredibly generous, cook and host and he loves to have you over he says he makes things with love but his making it with love is an act of generosity of giving of his time his resources and his table and home to make your life a joy it's always great to be invited to his house when we were in richmond sarah and i were years. we had three little kids very little kids and we had just bought our first house and it was uh, a small cottage. And we had to fix up some of the stuff inside, but didn't have a lot of money. 
So the Allen brothers stepped in. The Allen brothers were Tom and Lewis Allen. Tom and Lewis were, I don't know, five, 10 years older than me, but you know, we were in our mid twenties and they were in their thirties. And so they knew way more. They were adults. We were still kids. Tom and Lewis came in and said, oh, you need to refinish your wood floors. We'll help you to do that. And they did. They helped me to do a multiple thousand dollar job for a couple hundred dollars, but that's because they put in their time and their energy and their expertise. They were sanding and sanding and sanding with me. They would spend hours after work and on the weekends for two to three weeks until we got it all done. It was one of the most generous acts that I've seen. These two brothers who gave of their expertise, their skill, and their time and their sweat just out of kindness and generosity. See, when we think about generosity, we need to remember that what the word currency means. A currency is a medium of an exchange of value, a medium for exchange of value. So that can be money like dollars, but it can also be stuff, our resources, our time, our home, our car, our abilities the food we make. And one reason to think about this is because somebody could be generous with their money. They freely will give money away, but they're very stingy with difficult people, needy people that require more time and emotional engagement than they want to give. So we can be generous in one area technically with money, but not with our emotional energy with our time, not with our love. The gospel gives us a picture of God as a generous God, and it's not about money. It's about his grace entering into this world and our lives. And the call of God through his generosity is to live by his generosity and his grace in a culture of scarcity. Last week, we looked at the generous God from Revelation or from uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And what we saw is God is a generous God and the creation, the creation that we live in, that he created is abundant and flourishing. But we wrestle constantly with a different mindset. It's the mindset that Adam and Eve had in the garden and we have today. It's the mindset of scarcity. There is not enough. And I must take care of me and mine at every turn. The God of creation, the generous God, invites us instead of scarcity to a mindset of Sabbath, of remembering that there is enough that I can trust this God and resting. And this gets carried on with the gospel account itself, which is the description of how God in his generosity intervened in this world to save us. We have a generous savior. One of the great verses that describes the generosity of God through uh, what he offered in Jesus Christ is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. And we're not looking at this today, but it could be a verse to really uh, be the standard verse for this whole series. Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What's happening right there is Paul is using currency language. He's using the language of economics to talk about what God has done in Jesus. Jesus was rich 
he gave up his richness and became poor so that you and I might gain all of his richness. And of course, he's not talking about dollars or gold. He's talking about every other way in which Christ has given up all for us. It is the generous gift of a Savior, of a God who gave of himself for us. In Romans chapter 8 that we're looking at today, we're getting to this, um, the, what, what I'm going to call the high point of the gospel, the, the Paul's letter to Rome. And the, the book of Romans is Paul's letter to the Roman Christians where he gives basically the gospel in 16 chapters. In chapters 1 through 3, he talks about the problem of humanity and our sinful brokenness and distance from God and being under his wrath. And then in chapters 3 through 11, he describes in detail, using a lot of different analogies and, and metaphors and descriptions, how God has reconciled us to himself, justified us, saved us, redeemed us, and then ultimately calls us to a response, to live as living sacrifices in response to what God has done for us. We live out of God's generosity in a generous posture towards the world around us. In Romans chapter 8 that we're looking at today, we get to the high point of the gospel affirmation. At the beginning of Romans 8 verse 1, it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 11, it says God dwells in us by his spirit. He takes up residence in us. And in verse 16 of Romans 8, that it affirms that we are children of God. And in verse 17, heirs of eternity with Christ. And then no matter what happens, God has confirmed that his good will be worked out in our lives. We are justified. We are chosen. We are already glorified, and that is our destiny. And then we get to this verse 31, which is the beginning of our section here, where Paul writes um, this question, this rhetorical question that, of course, he then goes on to answer pretty definitively. And his question is this, if God if God is for us, who can be against us? So he's saying, you know, you worry so much in life and you see the opposition all around you, whether it's the Roman government or your neighbors or just life being hard. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the question is this, from our perspective, is there enough? Paul's saying, well, what do you think? Is there enough? If God is for us, is there enough? And his answer is, well, of course there is. That's a ridiculous question. God is for us. But we wrestle constantly with a scarcity mindset. At the root of a scarcity mindset is worry. It's the fear that there is not enough of whatever, of whatever it is that we value and that we want and that we're after. And so if we're talking about life and death, Beneath our fear of, of not having enough, that scarcity mindset is a fear of not having food, right? Or of money or of health. It's a survival instinct and it's a fear that I'm going to die. It's that fear of death that every human being has. And it's that fear of what if I get sick? What if I can't provide for my family? What if I die? That scarcity mindset though is not just about fear of physical death. It's about fear of death or loss in everything that we do value. And that's where you could add in there things like our hunger and need to be loved. We, as human beings, fear being forgotten by friends, being rejected by people, being alone. 
Many people, even some listening today, have dealt with a trauma of abuse or of loss. And so there's a, a lot of pain and scar tissue and fragility around that idea of, am I loved? Will I be loved? Can I be loved? We hunger for love and acceptance. We're clamoring constantly for attention or approval. And we can live with a scarcity mindset that if I don't get it myself, I won't be accepted or loved. And part of that ties into our human need to be worthy, to matter. But we wrestle as humans with guilt and shame and our conscience is wondering, am I forgiven? Can I ever be forgiven? Can I ever be sure? And we, we wear shame and guilt and don't feel worthy. Or we are the kind that are constantly striving and achieving, trying, trying to prove we matter, trying to prove we measure up, that our value and our worth is based on our achievements, our record, our goodness, our parenting, our career, our bank account. The gospel of a generous savior assures us there is enough. There is enough. He has provided all that you need. You need to rest in this. We see this explicitly laid out in the verses that Paul gives in his argument in answering the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? In verses 33 to 34, Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can condemn? Well, we know what that's like. We live with a constant voice of Satan inside of our head saying, you claim to be a Christian, but why would you go do what you just did? And didn't you ask for forgiveness for this same thing last week? I mean, how many times are you going to keep doing it? The accuser is bringing condemnation. And on the other side, the world and our culture and others are constantly condemning us because we don't measure up, because our achievements aren't as great, or we have been rejected. And our conscience itself, we bring it against ourselves as well, feeling unworthy, feeling guilty. But what Romans 8 verses 33 through 34 tell us is, you know, God is for you and no one can bring any charge against you. You are God's chosen. He is the one who has justified you. You don't need to justify yourself. So Satan can't condemn you. The world can't condemn you or bring any charges against you. In fact, you can't even bring any charges against you. The only one who can bring charges against you are Christ Jesus. He is the only one who can judge you. And he received the judgment for you in your place. In fact, he is your lawyer interceding for you. And he has already paid the debt for you. No one can bring any charge against you. You are worthy because Christ died for you and has said that you are. And this means nothing can separate us from that love of God. In verse 35, he goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? Can anything separate us from what God has for us? Can suffering or poverty? No. It doesn't mean those things aren't horrible 
part of the brokenness of a sinful and fallen world. But they do not separate you from God's love for you. They don't mean God doesn't love you. Can persecution or political powers, regardless of whether it's here or in another country, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Do not fear the one who can kill you, Jesus said. Fear the one who has your eternal salvation in his hands. Can Satan separate us from the love of God? No. He goes on to say in verses 37 to 39, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can anything separate us from God? And what God has for us, his love for us, his value of us, the eternal life he has in store for us. No, you are more than conquerors. You know, that's the word that uh, John the Reve in Revelation was using again and again to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers. Paul's saying you are already conquerors, not because of anything you or I did, but because of what Christ Jesus did for us. And he says you are more than conquerors, which is actually something that's impossible. A conqueror is somebody who is victorious. It's This summer, the, uh, the Olympics are coming back, the ones that were supposed to be last year. And you're going to see some amazing things. You're going to see somebody win the 100-meter run. You're going to see uh, swimmers swim at the fastest. You're going to see gymnasts do amazing things. But it's almost like what Paul is saying is you are more than the greatest gymnast in the world. You're, you're faster than the fastest person in the world. You're even faster than that. You're more than a gold medal winner in the eyes of God. You are more than a conqueror over all these things that can feel like they're going to separate you. And we say, but I don't feel this way. I don't feel like a conqueror. I don't feel victorious. But Paul is reminding us that in Christ, nothing can defeat you, not even death. Because ultimately what matters most, your love and acceptance are yours in Christ Jesus. At the end of verse 39, he affirms that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing at all can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I are completely, totally, and utterly loved. You didn't earn it, and you can't lose it. When you realize how much God loves you, you actually become invincible. You can't die. I mean, sure, your body can stop, but you know, because of his love for you, that you will not die forever. And nothing in this world can feel like a death anymore because you are filled by the only thing that can truly fill you. We have a generous savior. That generous savior, Paul describes in verse 32, as the one who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And he goes on to say, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things. God, our generous God, did not spare his own son. He's using, actually, it's a reference back to Abram 
being willing to sacrifice Isaac. And it's a reference that's calling to bear all the promises of the entire covenant of God from Genesis all the way through Exodus to David and the Psalms and the prophets. All those promises are, are ours. As Abram didn't um, was willing to sacrifice his son, God did sacrifice his son. He did not spare him but gave him up for us all, which is almost a direct reference to Jesus' own words in John 3, 16, when he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then Paul closes off, how will he not also graciously give us all things? The language of the gospel the good news of what God did for us in Christ on the cross is the language of generosity. It is of our debts being of our debts being paid, of being ransomed and redeemed, which is basically your freedom has been purchased. Your freedom from sin, from death has been purchased. And the word grace itself means being rich in mercy and an unmerited gift as Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. We have a generous God and a generous Savior who has given himself fully to us and for us. In other words, we are full of what we really need. There is enough. And so God invites us to respond in gratefulness and rest. Are you full or do you not have enough? You know, the Allen brothers who helped me with my house uh, years ago, uh, Tom told a story about when they were younger, when they were teenagers, and there was apparently a third Allen brother. And these Allen brothers, Tom and Lewis, and their third brother were tall. I mean, I'm not that tall. These guys were all over six foot tall. And they, Tom said when they were in high school and they were all like about a year apart, um, their mom would make a chicken dinner, but because the boys were in high school and ate so much, she had to make two whole roast chickens and all the stuff around it. And what would happen is they had a, a family dinner and they would all sit around the table and eat their food. And then they would have to wait until mom and dad were done eating to see if they could get seconds. And what would happen is the dad and mom would talk to each other and they'd be like, I'm, I'm good. I'm full. And the dad would say, yeah, I'm good. I'm full. Boys, if you want any more, you can have it. And they literally would attack the chicken carcasses that were left, knowing that if, if they didn't get a hold of it first, their other brother was going to. I remember laughing at this story when they told about that scarcity mindset, actually, of a teenage boy who's absolutely hungry and not sure if there's going to be enough chicken for him. But I also had that same mentality in college. We'd put in for pizza, and then I'd realize, ooh, I think I wanted more than the two pieces that I said I wanted. And I was hoping all along that, that, um, that Lance or Stu would decide they were full after one piece so I could have a third. There's a scarcity mindset that comes when you feel like you're hungry and you want more and there's not going to be enough. And it's very different than having a Thanksgiving dinner when there's way too much food. You know, and hopefully you've had such a Thanksgiving dinner where it's not just the turkey, but it's all the other things that everyone brings. And it doesn't matter if there's 10 people or 25 people. There is way too much food. So much food at a Thanksgiving dinner sometimes that I've gone and I've eaten. I've, I've not eaten all day till that Thanksgiving dinner. Eaten, gone back for seconds, maybe even picked at something else, and then decided, okay, I can't eat anymore. And at that point, I am full and ready for a nap. And you know what? I don't care if somebody goes for thirds or fourths. I don't feel anxious about not getting my share. 
I have a fullness in me, not worried about getting any more because I've had enough. As humans, we are hungry. We desire love and acceptance, and we actually desire it from others. And we often derive our worth by comparing ourselves to others. What ends up happening is that other people in economic terms become a threat or a commodity. They're either a threat to my achievements and my worth or my being loved, or they're a commodity I use them to get my affirmation, my acceptance, my love. But in Christ, we no longer have to be hungry for these things. We are full. My insatiable hunger for love and acceptance are already fully mine in Christ. And so I'm not hungry. I don't need to see others anymore as a threat or a commodity. And instead, I can be generous. Generous with them because I am filled. Because I am rich and full of what I truly need. I can be generous with my resources. I can be generous with forgiveness. I can be generous with my time, with my emotions, with my talents. I'm not saying I am these things. I just am telling you that when I rest in the fullness of God's love for me and live out of a place of gratefulness, I find that I am able to be more freely generous with people that in the past or at other times I might think of as a threat or a commodity. This gospel of a generous Savior invites us to feel the fullness of what God has done for us and to rest in that through a grateful spirit. There's a, a woman named Amy Julia Becker, who's a great writer, um, and she has, uh, she's written a couple of books written for Christianity Today, and she posted something uh, to Facebook and maybe some other social media places earlier this week. So Amy Julia Becker um, has a daughter, Penny, that she's written about, um, and she's written about her in a couple of books, and including one book called A Good and Perfect Gift that was written um, in 2011 um, after they had found out about Penny being diagnosed with Down syndrome and some of the disappointment and then some of the joy that happened as they experienced what God had in store for them through their daughter, Penny. Well, in this uh, Facebook post, Amy Julia talks about what, ben, what Penny taught her one day earlier this week. This is what Amy Julia writes. Penny, who's now a teenager, expresses gratitude with abandon. Every Sunday morning throughout the pandemic, we each have written down our thanksgivings on an index card. And then Amy Julia gives a picture of uh, the index card that is Penny's. And Penny has hand-scribbled thanksgivings on this index card. And it's got over 20 things. She includes, thank you for friends and birthdays. Penny also writes, thank you for family that support me. Thank you for nature. And then in parentheses, even though I don't like to be outside. Thank you for Instagram. Penny expresses this thanksgiving with abandon. We do this because our pastor suggested it as a weekly offering during the pandemic. And every week, Amy Julia writes, I struggle to come up with a handful while Penny's list overflows. She knows how to pour out gratitude. So maybe it wasn't a mistake that she taught me something else about gratitude on a Friday night when Peter and I were eating dinner together. It had been a rough week of writing rejection for me. I said with some measure of shame, I always thought I would do something great. 
Peter pushed back a bit, noting that we've got three great kids. I've written some great books, and I've received great responses to my work. But even as he talked, my eyes welled up with tears. I once again struggled with the fear that my work hasn't been good enough. My words haven't been helpful enough, that I haven't been enough. So I said, well, maybe I just need to refine, redefine my understanding of great. At that moment, Penny walked into the room. Penny, how do you define great? Peter asked. She had just come home from jazz class. Her long hair was pulled back in a high ponytail. She wore a t-shirt and leggings, and now a quizzical expression was on her face. Grateful, she said. How do you define great? Grateful. I don't know whether she misheard Peter or whether she was answering his question, but I do know that her response was for me. How do you know you've done enough? By resting in his love. How do you know what the future holds without striving and grasping and manipulating? By letting go. How do you define great? Grateful. The generous life, the generous life involves resting in the fullness of God's love for you in Jesus. It is a fullness, it is a gratefulness, and it is generous. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, open our hearts to your extreme love for us to enable us to live not out of a position of fear and scarcity and not enough, but to rest in the fullness of your love for us, your value of us, the life eternal we have in you, to be grateful and to be at peace. Amen.